It's time to roll up those joints, pack those bowls, and fire up those nails. Because you're listening to Blazing with Bobby Black on Cannabis Radio. What's up, everybody? What's up, Hawaii Cannabis Expo? My name is Bobby Black, and we are doing a live taping of my podcast, Blazing with Bobby Black, right now on Cannabis Radio. And I'm very happy to be here with you guys. It's my third year in a row here at the Hawaii Cannabis Expo. Um, a great event. Love coming out here. Love the people. Love the aloha spirit. Uh, it's been an amazing time this year and uh, every year. Uh, shout out going out to... Uh, Dana and Mike and Cedric and Alan, all the guys who put this amazing event on, uh, happy to be here and uh, looking forward to uh, spending time with all you guys here on the expo floor. So uh, today we're going to be sitting down with uh, Tim and Taylor Blake, uh, the founders uh, and owners of the Emerald Cup, which if you're not familiar with it, it is the uh, pretty much the premier cannabis event in California. Uh, and it's uh, extremely uh, successful, well-regarded event, and uh, we're happy to have them here. It's their first time in Hawaii, uh, here at the expo, uh, and uh, we're super stoked to have him here. So uh, let me give you guys give a little background uh, about Tim. He's been a grower for over 40 years, uh, an old-school uh, OG outlaw grower, dealer, and smuggler. Uh, he's a co-founder of Mendocino Farmers Collective, Healing Harvest Farms, and the California Cannabis Reform Policy. He's also the author of a memoir called The Cannabis Crusader. Uh, and as I mentioned, Taylor is his daughter, and she has been part of his life and part of his business for a long time. So everybody give it up for Tim and Taylor. How are you guys doing? Uh, really well. Glad to be here. Really honored to be here with Helton Sword Pork, Dan and uh, Mike. And Al's great, too. Wherever you are, Al, you're great. We're taking you with us. So let's, let's uh, how has your time in Hawaii been so far? Uh, what have you done besides the expo, if anything? And what is your take on the expo in general? Uh, we're ready to move. Uh, California's got snow right now. It's so beautiful here in the islands. Everybody's so happy. I can see why. It's so blessed. Uh, you guys are really, uh, really living in a wonderful paradise. And uh, the, the, the expo itself is great. It reminds me of the Cup a few years ago. You see the innocence and the vibrance. In California, we've kind of gone over the top with uh, a little bit of... And, and well, we lost that? Anyway, it's really nice to see the energy here. because It's really innocent. It's really happy. There's no entitlement. And uh, it's just great to see that vibe that we used to have. Now it's become big business very quickly in California. So it's, it's really good in one way, but it's kind of sad in another way, too. Well, let's talk, let's talk a little about you and your background. Um, tell us about your, your childhood, your upbringing, and, uh, and about the first time you got high. Well, uh, my father was an attorney. My family uh, had, a, had a house in Santa Cruz, which is on the coast, uh, about an hour and a half south of San Francisco. And we moved over to the coast, and all of a sudden we were right downtown, and Barnwood went up on the walls, and my mom opened an art gallery, and all the hippies were coming in and started getting high with my folks. And the next thing you know, that uh, they were giving me cannabis and helping me deal. So I became kind of a very uh, young dealer at 14 years old, getting back then, which were blocks <laughs> of uh, Mexican or Colombian uh, 2.2s. And I would take 32 ounces to school on a Friday and sell those, and then keep about three or four for our friends, and we would get high all weekend. And 
uh, as I got older, um, 18, 19, the people that built the industry had started moving in all the giant loads of Thai and the hash and the Mexican and Colombian and all that to Oaxaca. And they, uh, they started working with me, which very quickly led to uh, them bringing in shipments of about 100,000 pounds at a time. And uh, four or five people would get 25,000 or 5,000 pounds. Uh, and then you'd, you'd drop that down to 1,000 pound people. And all of a sudden, uh, I was the youngest guy getting 1,000 pounds at a time at like 20 years old. So... Uh, that was back in the early 70s, uh, late 70s, and so I tell people if you want to know what happened over the last 40 years, just uh, pick a decade, or, and I'll tell you how it evolved. Uh, I watched uh, I watched that turn into a very large business, and then uh, they changed the minimum mandatories, and within two years, um, all the Thai and all the Mexican, all the big loads were taken off the streets, and that was replaced by cheap cocaine. In fact, I had a one of the lieutenants in the business uh, came to me and he, and he showed me the best, finest-looking cannabis I'd ever seen. It was called The Grease and the Magic and the Chronic. Anybody that's old enough will remember those names. And he had charged me twice what anybody would be paying for cannabis. And, of course, I paid for it because it was the finest cannabis I'd ever seen. But he said, everybody's going to be growing it under lights that you see in, like, Safeways in about two years. And, of course, I had, like, 1,000 pounds in my backyard. And I thought, I'll buy the, the cannabis, but you're out of your mind. <laughs> and, and, of course, they wanted you to pay uh, a third of the crop for two years, and you couldn't cut a clone. That was really the, the beginning of what they did with the OG and the PKs later on. And sure enough, uh, 18 months later, I had to go back and beg for that clone because they took out about 15 loads. And sure enough, uh, cocaine became uh, $10 a gram and was known as crack. And the inner cities couldn't find cannabis anymore, but they sure got a heck of a lot of cocaine. And people started going to jail for 10 to 20 years for what would have been a year so. Overnight, that made uh, the indoor markets all become a reality, and then the rest of us ran up to Northern California and the rest of the mountains of California uh, to grow outdoors under the trees. And so that was really the evolution of that business, uh, mid-'80s, mid-1980s. Yeah, and obviously the Emerald Triangle is, is renowned for being pretty much the center of the cannabis cultivation world uh, for, for quite some time now, for generations, a couple generations. Um, and, uh, you know, we, I'm sure you're very aware of it, and I'm going to ask you your opinion on it, but there was recently a documentary that came out on Netflix called Murder Mountain talking about uh, the cannabis scene in Humboldt County, in the Emerald Triangle, and how it really transformed from a place where uh, hippies and, and, and people who just wanted to drop off the grid and grow cannabis uh, for themselves and their friends and make a few bucks to support their families... Uh, suddenly transformed into this violent, uh, crazy place, and it, and it had a lot to do with the war on drugs and the raids, didn't it? Well, yeah, it did. I mean, originally it was a lot of the back-to-landers went up there and started growing some flowers just to pay their extra bills and be able to survive. Uh, that quickly turned into a very large business, and uh, where they were doing Murder Mountain, that was out on Island Mountain, the eastern part of Humboldt, where basically it was the cheaper land was out there, so the rougher crowds were going out to where they could get land. And so uh, Island Mountain became infamous as a place that even the sheriffs were afraid to go into for a number of years because there was so many murders and so many things going on. So uh, Murder Mountain is, is definitely based in fact. Uh, it is not really the whole story of the Emerald Triangle by any means. Uh, that's a sure. small part of it. Uh, and it's funny, the sensationalism is what eats it up and everybody calls up and goes, God, are you guys safe up there? And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, so that's not the way it is. Although... I myself have had some pretty, uh, you know, heavy stories where I've, I've been tied up in a bathtub while they thought they murdered my friend and, and they were plotting my murder uh, while I was hogtied in a bathtub. So 
Uh, I have been part of that violent uh, part of the industry. It, it is a, you know, it was a part of it. You don't see it much anymore, but uh, there was a lot of money, and uh, people couldn't do anything about it. So if you could come up and rob people, uh, it was pretty much a you know thing that where the police weren't going to be called, nobody's going to be brought in. So there's elements of both sides, but I like to prefer to re, you know look at the the better parts of what the triangle is. Sure, sure, and, and that was my uh, that was my takeaway from the show as well was that uh, they didn't certainly didn't tell the whole story, certainly not of the whole region, but also um, just how ineffective the law enforcement was at enforcing laws where people were actually missing or killed, but they seemed to have no problem assembling SWAT teams and helicopters when it came to eradicating plants up that like old hippies were growing. Like, what, talk about a you know totally off balance priorities. Well, camp came in, and that was the uh, state agencies uh, working through the county and through the DEA, and they were heavily funded, and they came in with major choppers, just like they did here in Hawaii. I mean, they terrorized everybody, but they were very effective. And then with the penalties uh, so severe, it became where you really got good money. I mean, at the peak, you could sell, uh, I was selling bud for 6400 a pound. That was the most I ever got. Wow. Uh, but that, that was 400 an ounce wholesale. Uh, and but that that dropped, uh, of course, as as the risk went down. But for many years, all those years, uh, people faced heavy persecution, uh, prosecution, going to jail. Uh, that's where we made all the money. Uh, people talk about going back to that. I voted for Prop 64 in California. I got I've got a lot of flack because there's an extinction event going on with all the small farmers up there because it's really hard for them to, to maintain their their industry the way it is when they're competing against big business. But uh, knowing how many of my friends did long prison sentences, knowing how many people were robbed, uh, know, knowing how many people couldn't get access to the medicine. Look at today. Look at all these people at this expo. Uh, if it wasn't for everything that's been done to make that legalization effort happen, then people wouldn't be able to come here freely and, and partake in us. And within a couple of years, you guys will have consumption on site, you'll have sales on site, and you'll be like the Emerald Cup. The whole thing will just be a legal business and the way it should be. So... Uh, it's amazing the Wild West stories that we lived in, and it's, it's even more amazing to see the, the beautiful uh, you know, paradise we're building now. Do you, do you see any parallels between uh, California's legalization process and what's going on in here in Hawaii? And would you have any advice for the uh, people here in Hawaii who are in charge of putting together policy as far as what mistakes not to make uh, and what, what to avoid and what to, what, what, how to move forward? Well, uh, about 12 years ago, Pebbles Trippett, who's an infamous activist in California, she got herself arrested so that you could have the right to carry cannabis in your car. She spent a year in jail for that, uh, and that was in her 60s. Now, she came to me at my place, Area 101, which is the home of the Emerald Cup, and she asked me if I would sponsor the sheriff's debates between the sheriff candidates and farmers and, and cultivators, because at that point we finally realized there were more people that were farming and cultivating cannabis than there were rednecks and conservatives and whatnot. So we did that at Area 101. I agreed. I've got uncles and, and uh, cousins that are cops. Uh, I've always told people that, you know, everybody thinks the cops are all bad, but when you're getting robbed or having problems, you're not calling your friends, you're calling the cops. So you got to realize there's good cops, there's bad cops, there's good farmers, there's bad farmers. We're all one big family. So I did that. We had four sheriff candidates come up. Uh, it went so well. We had about 500 people. We did a runoff the two candidates that were left, uh, we actually got Tom Allman elected. That sheriff, Tom Allman, is still uh, overseeing Mendocino uh, you know, sheriff's departments to this day. We also had the DA's debates that came in. And so in the course of one year, we had all those debates at Area 101 to bring in the legalization effort. So it's really about education. You know, it's all about educating people because you see that here, these conservative people that don't want it to come forward. 
you, you can change their hearts and minds through just education and knowledge and continuing to go back and to show them that you're not just stoners, we're just not this way, we're not the way that we presented this whole reefer madness that's been going on for 100 years. And uh, we ended up really turning and winning the day there. And then, of course, that led to the 9.31 program, which was the first in the country where you could grow 99 plants legally out in the full sun. That was before Colorado and Washington ever went legal. And that led us to opening up the Mendocino Farmers Collective, which was really one of the first collectives uh, working towards getting outdoor cannabis in the primarily indoor markets throughout California. So uh, last year we started working in a little town towards Willits. Uh, There was a mayor there that said over his dead body he'd allow cannabis in his town. Uh, His redneck friends on the council listened to us go there four times and do presentations. At the end of those, the guy that had been battling me for 20 years turned turned to Ron and said, uh, well, turned to Mayor Burton and said, you know, we have empty storefronts. We don't have any jobs. It's time to just trust these people. And he reached across there and he shook my hand. He said, you know what, Tim? You've convinced me. Just bring it in. Let's make Willits a different town. Well, now Willits has three dispensaries going in. It has six manufacturing sites. It's got three or four distribution companies. And within two years, that town is going to blow up with jobs and taxes and become a healthy town again because we actually went in there and spent the time. But it takes a lot of time to do that, and people have to be willing to give that time because it's free. It's volunteer time. Dana does that. You see people here, I'm sure, throughout, throughout uh, Hawaii that do that, and you've got to honor them and really support them and help them out because that's how it gets done. Yeah, right on, right on. So you, you, you obviously had a, a, you had a life before you got involved in cannabis. I mean, you said you started smoking young, but I know that you were... Uh, a real estate agent, and you had like a, a more normal life, I guess, you normal in quotes. Um, what was it that, uh, what was the turning point, what was the moment that made you decide like cannabis is what I want to do with my life, this is my career, this is my, my you know, my path? Uh, it, it never veered. I started that when I was 14 years old, and uh, until I went into full legalization about helping Tom Allman get elected 12 years ago, I, I've been a basically an outlaw my whole life. I went into real estate because I'm a workaholic and you had to have a cover for your jobs and stuff. And then I went into uh, film and television production for the same reason. But I never stopped dealing uh, all the way through the 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, That really didn't change, like I said, until legalization. And then I became one of those 9.31 farmers that could grow legally with, with a sheriff's permit. And at that point, I had to give up my outlaw world because, of course, of all the political stuff and because of the Animal Cup and because of uh, that ability to grow legally. So, uh most of my life, that's what I've been, and that's what I'm proud of. And uh, I'm proud of all the people that, like myself, supported this cause so we could end up seeing days like today. So speaking of the outlaw lifestyle, which, uh, you know, the outlaw lifestyle is eventually going to go the way of the dodo, unfortunately, as cannabis becomes more legal, um, which is good in some ways and kind of sad in other ways. But uh, I know that you had your share of uh, outlaw experiences, one of which I believe you had quite the run-in with the Hells Angels. Is that right? Can you tell us about that? Well, that's, uh, um, yeah, I can. That's a long story. But I, I tried to turn around somebody who was, uh, you know, the Hells Angels themselves I don't have any issues with. And, and the person that I'm talking about, Mike Wigner's dead, was just a person that used to do enforcement for them. Uh, and he had some properties up in Northern California. We tried to move Earth Dance, a very infamous uh, gathering, to his property. And then he let us move in there. And then he turned uh, out to wire the whole house so he could hear what we were doing. Uh, for six months and set us up. He was a master. He spent uh, a lot of time getting these bugs that you could put into houses and make their phones turn into speakers. And so he would have five or six different people running extortion deals, uh, robberies, uh, all kinds of mayhem. And uh, 
I'd known about him. His nickname was the Antichrist or Mad Mike. Uh, I engaged him because we thought we could do this show. I moved into his property. We got set up. Make a long story short, uh, we brought a few hundred pounds in. It was about uh, the last day we were going to get it done. People had to leave. I ended up having to watch that place because all my friends had to leave for weddings and stuff. And uh, my friend Marv uh, came through the door, his 30th birthday, and came in to uh, celebrate. And that saved my life because I knew this guy was going to come in and rob it. He said, what is the gun doing there? And I said, well, the gun's here because this mad Mike's going to come in. I know tonight's going to be it. Everything's going to come in. It's, nobody's here. It's just me. I could feel it. I've been meditating my whole life. So sure enough, the door got broken down. Three mini-14s facing us. I couldn't get to my gun. They walked over and beat Marv almost to death, put me in a bathtub afterwards when I surrendered. Uh, hogtied me, and uh, they thought Marv was dead, so they basically plotted my murder about how they were going to make a clean hit of this while uh, while I was hogtied in that bathtub. So needless to say, I'll never allow myself to be tied up again, and I had PTSD for years over that. Uh, they had so much, though, and Marv did survive and come back to life that uh, I was lucky enough that they didn't really need to kill me or Marv, and uh, they took off with everything we owned. I had to start over and go out in the fields and cut for weeks to get, well, days to get about three or four pounds of small bud just to start over. And uh, it's a much larger story than that. It went on for two years of battling with that. But uh, that's one of the stories I'm writing about, one of the books I've got. That's a harrowing story for, for anyone to have to endure that ordeal. And I know you've had to start over a few times from scratch, haven't you? Uh, I'm one of those people that, uh, the guy that delivers fuel to all the indoor people in the mountains, that used to be the most important person in any business for the cannabis people because if back in the day when they couldn't get warrants to come in, the only way they could get it was either through a snitch or somebody coming onto your property. So who's the most important person? It was the fuel guy coming in and out because he was the one that could turn you in in a minute. And at the same time, that person could deliver all the cannabis and drive it off because they weren't, at that time, they weren't looking for those people. So the fuel guys were coming in, bringing all the fuel in, and then they were, then they were driving off with all your, with your butts. Uh, so they were critically important. And so one of these people that know me for a long, long time and watched me go through several of these episodes said, you know, Tim, I've been up here my whole life doing this. And I don't know anybody that's worked harder than you and has less to show for it. It's amazing that you have nothing to show for it and everybody else will be worth 10 or 20 million. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's true. But I've got my stories that I'll turn into books. And uh, that's what I'm doing now. Yeah. And you, you did write a memoir called Cannabis Crusader, right? I did. It was a few years ago. It was right up against the cup. We didn't get to really finish the editing. It was, uh, it was too bulky. It was, uh, it was a really wonderful book, but it needed to be edited down. I put it out, realized I wanted to change that, so I pulled it off, never really published it, and I've got that together with a trilogy that I'm finishing now to come out, and uh, we've got that shopping for the networks to turn into a television series. Fantastic. And I know that your writing is one of your passions alongside cannabis. Has writing uh, been a passion of yours as long as cannabis, or is that a more recent uh, development? No, my grandfather uh, was a Harvard-educated lawyer. I had one of the first newspapers, worked with Mark Twain. My dad was a writer. Uh, it's actually one of the things on my bucket list. I'd love to be able to say that I was able to call myself a published writer before I go. Uh, so I've been writing my whole life, writing these stories. Uh, it takes a lot of work. Writing is a solo effort. Uh, I'm so busy with all my companies. They've been waiting for me to finish up my chapters and summaries to go down to L.A. for nine months, and I'm finally getting the time. Uh, but, you, but for me, I can't smoke while I write, so I need to find the space, which is very challenging if you're a person that really likes to get high, uh, to put that time away and write every day and devote those hours every day for weeks at a time and months on end to do it. So it's something I really love. And I know that you've told me in the past that you were a big fan of High Times, that uh, High Times was one of your go-to resources. Tell me a little about your love for High Times and how, how that has blossomed well, I'm 62. I grew up with High Times. It was the iconic magazine at the time. There was nobody like them. 
I love what they did, Michael and the whole group of uh, people, you, you know, everybody there, Malcolm. I mean, that was a tremendous group of people. They did tremendous work for all of us for decades. Uh, unfortunately, that, that integrity uh, slipped away a little bit. It, it changed and got altered. Uh, I, I know Matt and I know a lot of the people at High Times, and I have nothing against them. I really wish them the best. But uh, to my way of thinking, the best thing that we can do for our industry is to put on an integrity-based event. Uh, to do an integrity-based work in your products and your flowers and everything that you do. And then you're presenting us in the best light because that's what we need. We need ambassadors and evangelists for our industry so that we can take this around the country and the world. And the only way that's going to happen is by doing the right thing. And unfortunately, I think that High Time has made some mistakes. I hope they turn around. And it's like I said, it doesn't matter who you are, it matters who you were, it matters who you are. And so I like to remember the best memories of what I think of High Times, which was the, the finest publication and uh, company in the world at one time. You're listening to Blazin' with Bobby Black on Cannabis Radio. Now available for pre-order through crowdfunding for just $14 plus $10 shipping. Pouches, premium mixing and rolling pouches, allow you to carry and prepare your herbs for consumption with discretion and ease. These stylish pouches are handcrafted using strong zips, long-wearing buffalo leather outside, and smooth sheepskin inside. A portion of proceeds go to fund vital medical research into cannabis for ADHD. See a demo and get yours now on Indiegogo or Pouches.com. That's P-O-U-C-H-Z.com. Hey, take a look at this. They're selling smart pots. They have pot that can make you smart? Where is it? No, not that kind of pot. Smart pot's the best aeration container to grow your plants. Check this out. It's the original fabric container for faster producing, healthier plants. They're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields. Plus, smart pots are reusable and sustainable. So you can use them over and over again, no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor. That's very smart, but how good are they for the environment? Smart pots are BPA-free and lead-free, so you always be able to ensure a pure, clean grow and they're 100% made in the U.S. Over 28 million smart pots have already been sold, so it seems like a smart investment. Look for smart pots in over 2,000 garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric aeration container. Find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com. Are you ready to be inspired and educated by the best of the best in the cannabis industry while enjoying sunny South Florida? Then you cannot miss out on the second annual United States Cannabis Conference and Expo, August 2nd and 3rd at the Hyatt Regency in downtown Miami. The USCC Expo welcomes all cannabis business professionals, medical cannabis caregivers and clinicians, growers and dispensary owners to join us for another can't-miss event. Sponsored by the radio and podcast leader for all things cannabis, CannabisRadio.com. Learn more at usccexpo.com. Blazing with Bobby Black. Uh, let's talk a little about the event now. Um, when I worked at High Times, I, I really didn't get an opportunity to go to other cannabis events because we didn't cover other cannabis events in the magazine. Uh, and, and I didn't really, we did so many, started doing so many of, of our events that we didn't really get a chance to go to many others. But uh, I first got a chance to visit the Emerald Cup uh, three years ago after I had left High Times. Um, and I was blown away. It was a really, uh, you know, similar in some ways to a Cannabis Cup, but just much more uh, friendly and chill. Um, and it, it, just, it just seemed very well run and it seems to have uh, progressed quite a bit, even just from three years ago. Um, tell us a little about the event. How did you first get the inspiration for the event? 
I grew up loving to go to the county fairs that we've all uh, participated in, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the friendly competition. And so a couple of friends and I just decided that we could do that with the cannabis industry, and we were going to do it. Back then, that was a serious felonies. I mean, most people were going to prison for anything, let alone a contest like we did. I've got a small event center up in the middle of the Emerald Triangle, and we decided to disguise it as a birthday party and just do it. Uh, we only had a couple dozen entries. The number one and three people didn't even show up to get their prizes. Everybody was in mass, and most people counted on us getting arrested. Uh, we got away with it. Uh, we got away with it the next few years. Uh, it slowly grew uh, into, into what it is today. But back then, it was just a flowers contest. There were no vendors. It was an all-night party, and it was just a celebration of all the friends getting together and just going through the fall harvest. And uh, it was a really innocent, wonderful moment that... It turned into a huge business that I never really counted on or, or planned on doing. Uh, now we have 27 contests. We have three speaker stages. We have three music stages. You know, we have 30,000 people for the weekend. Uh, we had 1,200 entries a couple years ago. And it got so big that we partnered with a company called Red Light Management, Star Hill Presents, who discovered Dave Matthews, and, and they, they manage Fish, uh, Luke Bryant, all the EDM. And they uh, also own parts of Outside Lands, Bonnaroo, South by Southwest, Lollapalooza. And so they've come in and they saw that we could turn this into a worldwide event, turn it into like a cannabis Lollapalooza. So they brought a uh, really world-class production team in. We've worked with them for the last two years. Everybody that's come to the show has seen us, that it's stepped up. I mean, I, I run a small event center and I'm good at running the cup. Taylor and I did a wonderful job for what we had. But when you start running a city for the weekend of 30,000 people, uh, then you've got to deal with in and outs and security. And uh, the new regulations last year, we spent a half million dollars just on doing a compliant show and being able to do a compliant contest and on-site wow. sales. So uh, it's, it's a huge endeavor, and it really takes professionals. And so we're very honored to have Jim and the Red Light people and Corn Capshaw by our side. So what, what year was it that you first started it? That was 19, uh, 2004. That was 15 years ago. Uh, it, was, uh, it was amazing to think back of how far we've come since that day. I would have never thought I would live to have seen this day. And um, the number one winner, actually, was my friend gave uh, his father an 86-year-old farmer who was straight, never even grown cannabis, a purple kush, and he grew that and entered it for his father, and he won. And actually, his father said, you know, I'm going to be uh, dead in a few years. You should just keep the, uh, the award for the, for the cup for, for infamy, and I'm really proud that that's still sitting in our, on our house. You touched briefly on how the event has changed over the years. Obviously, it started off as a very small private party, which is kind of the way the Cannabis Cup began in Amsterdam many years ago. Uh, and then it started to evolve. More and more people obviously wanted to come and attend. Um, where, where, where would you say in your mind was the tipping point where it went from being this like private, cool little party to something where you were like, holy shit, this is, this is a big deal now and we have, to, we have to start stepping it up? Well, there were two things that happened. Um, one is that 9.3 run program where you could grow 99 plants legally. That was working so well that we made almost a million dollars for the sheriff's department and five different counties were going to take that up and start doing that. And I said to my friends, either the feds are going to come in here and bust this or they're going to have to stand back and let it go. This is before Colorado and Washington. And sure enough, they came in and busted that program. And uh, Tom Allman, the sheriff, got on, on radio and television and said, look, we just gave you intel on cartel grows out in the mountains and then you're busting our program people that are supporting us. And they said, yeah, right, and if you do one more permit, we'll arrest you, county council, the supervisors, and everybody else. So at that time, everybody in the county got to see who the feds really were. Uh, Randy Johnson, who was the head of the program, who didn't even like us, and we started, and after two years, really did like us and said that, you know, other than the cannabis, you guys can come to my house. He said, now I know what it feels like to be under siege and waiting for the cops to come get you. So that was a big thing, and in that year, 
I was recommended to not do the Emerald Cup. And so I was going to cancel the Emerald Cup. And I just decided, you know, screw it. I don't care. They can come get me. We're not going to, to stand down to these people. And uh, all the people that we tried to get up for years, uh, Ed Rosenthal, uh, you're talking, uh, you're talking, uh, boy, all the attorneys uh, in the city, you know, Kendra Miller, I mean, Tony, Sarah, they all came up to support. So basically, I had about six attorneys. We had uh, speakers for the first time. Everybody came together and bonded and said, well, if they come and get us, they're going to get us all. And so uh, that never happened. They decided that we had too much support. They stood down. And at the same time, John Bergados, who was the founder and publisher of Skunk Magazine, was my first real supporter and sponsor. And he came and said, you know, there's an event that's called Spanibus. I didn't even know what it was. And he goes, but I see that the Emerald Cup could turn into that. You could move out of Area 101 and turn this into the biggest show. Now, High Times wasn't in uh, America at the time, the United States. There wasn't anybody doing any shows. In fact, High Times didn't come in until years later. So we were really the only public consumption, public sales, public contest. I think 2010 or 11 is when yeah. High Times started doing U.S. Yeah. Cups. Yeah. Yeah. So that was like you know seven years after us. So... Uh, so John had this vision. Unfortunately, he got busted a year later for uh, being called the largest seed dealer in the world. And it kind of sideswiped Skunk and sideswiped John for several years. Because anybody that's been busted like that, they string you out for years, they bleed you dry, they take all your money, and then they, they plead you out. And that's what they did with John, and they kind of destroyed his empire. But he came in and saw that and gave us the courage to move the cup from my place in Area 101 to the Mateel Community Center up in Garberville in Humboldt. And we had the biggest show there ever. And then we couldn't stay there because it was too big and uh, we had to move. And so we took a flyer on Sonoma County and uh, went down there and wrote a 22-page proposal. And most people thought we were abandoning the Emerald Triangle at that time. But uh, it turned out that all the vendors that did join us that year got to see that now they were getting direct access to the patients, to the, to the, uh, to the buyers, to the medicinal people. And so it was really a very good thing for them. And we got to all come together as a community and really talk. So... Uh, after that first year in Santa Rosa, it was like, wow, this could really become big. And between John and all those people supporting us that year with the feds coming after us, uh, we wouldn't be here without all that support. Which year was that first year in Santa Rosa? That was six years ago, so we're going back uh, 2012, I think. I mean, yeah, I think it was. And, uh, boy, we came in there. We didn't know what we were doing. My old partner, uh, girlfriend Samantha, helped me do that. And we went from 1,000 people to almost 10 uh, and we didn't know about in and out security, setup, production. It, uh, I, it's amazing we even pulled that off. And then the next year, Taylor came in, of course, and became my co-producer in the Cup and has been since. And again, we were really overmatched because the Cup doubled in size and we really realized that, boy, without real production crews uh, to put on a show for 15,000 people was a, was a big challenge. But, but we did it, and the speakers got bigger. I was worried that nobody showed up for the speakers, but they did. And all the vendors came in, and all of a sudden, we weren't just a, a cannabis competition. We were a full-on community gathering of not only... We were a community gathering. That's what I'm most proud of at, the, at Area 101. But we were worried that we would not be able to pull the community together in Santa Rosa that would fracture it. And what we found was is that we just expanded the Emerald Cup, included Sonoma County, included the whole state, and we basically made the whole state and the whole country the community and so that's what I'm proudest about that you feel when you come to the Emerald Cup now is there's a real sense of the community vibe there, of the farmers and the product makers and all the industry people coming together to have that celebration and, uh, and yearly, uh, yearly remembrance and gathering. It's really cool. Right on. And yeah, I've been to a lot of different cannabis events over the years, uh, both high times but also many others. 
Um, and I can honestly say that I definitely felt that. I definitely feel that there's a, a, a family community vibe at the Emerald Cup that is sometimes lacking in some of the other events. I don't feel it lacking here in Hawaii. I feel the same kind of community uh, togetherness here at the Hawaii Cannabis Expo. I guess in a way, maybe you could say that uh, you guys have tapped into California's aloha spirit. Well, you know, when you don't do it for the money and you're doing it because you want to do something great for your community, then the community feels that. When we first moved to Santa Rosa, we spent $2 on every person coming to the show so they wouldn't sell hot dogs and Twinkies. I mean, we sell meat, but it's organic. But So we could present ourselves in a certain light. And everything was about giving back to the community, and they could feel that. We used to go out and pick up 100 couches from the, uh, from the Goodwill so that everybody could have couches to sit on. And when you do all that and people feel that, it comes across that. It's the same thing with this show with Dana and Mike and their other partner. They're not in it for the money. They're in it to really further the industry, the community, and bring a place for people to come together and have a forum. And so you can see the other events that don't have that, uh, that emphasis, and you can feel their desire to make money. And it's just simple. You can just go walk across the show and you can get that vibe. You don't get that here, and you don't get that at the Emerald Cup. You're listening to Blazing. The National Cannabis Industry Association presents the Seed to Sale Show, February 12th and 13th in Boston. Register now at SeedToSaleShow.com or dial 888-409-4418. Use code CannabisRadio15, spelled as one word with capital letters, for 15% off of registration. NCIA Seed to Sale Show will host over 3,000 cannabis professionals and focus on innovations in technology and cultivation, infused products and extraction, and sales strategies. The show will recognize the best in the industry with the NCIA Industry Excellence Awards. Plan your experience now for the 2019 NCIA Seed to Sale Show in Boston, February 12th and 13th. Go now to SeedToSaleShow.com or call 1-888-409-4418. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now. About a game for your phone, gonna make you say, wow. The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash. Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash. Little by little, your empire grows large. Put the big celebrities inside your entourage. You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Cheech and Chong. Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong. The name of the game is him pink, that's the point. Download and play while you light yourself a joint. The business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp pink is even hot proved by the man who run high times. Oh yeah, get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Cannabis industry professionals want to gain some new leads, make genuine business connections, and get premier brand exposure? This is your opportunity. NCIA's new industry socials are kicking off in Seattle, Portland, Las Vegas, Salt Lake City, and Phoenix in January. Register today using the promo code CANNABISRADIO20, all spelled in caps as one word, Cannabis Radio 20 to take 20% off at thecannabisindustry.org slash events. Sponsorship opportunities are available. Register today at thecannabisindustry.org slash events. Blazing with Bobby Black. 
At this point, I'd like to bring Taylor in. Your dad uh, just mentioned you. I thought uh, you seemed kind of uh, lonely down there in the end. Uh, so welcome to the show, Taylor. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so let's. Uh, I want to talk a little about your role in the in the event, uh, when you came in, and, and, and what you've been involved with as far as developing the event. So I started with the Emerald Cup about 10 years ago. This will be my 11th year full-time. Um, I obviously was born into the cannabis industry, so I have that experience for sure. But I feel like the strength that I have coming into the Emerald Cup is definitely not the event side for sure, but it is the cultural side of having gone through the experience of growing up in the cannabis industry, having that perspective, having the relationships that I do, including with my dad. I mean, I have... We have my cousin Chad, Tim's nephew. He works with us too. It's like we're definitely very family driven. So, um, yeah, there's positives and negatives. <laughs> well, Taylor's uh, on the board of directors of California Growers Association. Uh, she does a lot of the political work. She goes out and really uh, does that. She represents the the uh, not only the community but but the female side of the community, which wasn't really a very large aspect for a long time because it was basically male driven. Because of the risk and all those being outlaws, you didn't see a lot of a lot of women in that industry, which is so wonderful to see now. Not only with my daughter, but with the women's panel today, we have it at the cup with all the women coming in and taking their rightful uh, place as half or more of this industry. So uh, I'm really proud that Taylor goes out and really uh, evangelizes for that too. You guys have had some pretty impressive performers. Uh over the past few years, especially. I, I don't know so much about the earlier days, but can you tell me about some of the uh, big headliners you guys have had at the event? Well, we started off with, uh, you know, acts like Don Carlos, the Abyssinians, uh, you know, small acts. We had Lucas Nelson. I'm really proud of that. Uh, you know, but we were a small stage, 300 people and stuff. So we really, the, uh, the total event cost for me back in the day was about 40 or 50 grand. The first year at Santa Rosa Fairgrounds was 400,000. This year was a $4 million budget. So we had a $600,000 music budget, which was more than the event cost uh, five years ago. Uh, so it's really amazing. Uh, we've had Damian Marley join us. Um, you know, we've had Big Gigantic. You know, we've, we, this year we had Sound Tribe come in. Uh, we've had The Roots. And then we've had some really, really wonderful music that I'm really proud of that's really evolved over the years and really stepped up. A revolution on the Cali Roots side. Uh, you know, just some great artists. And uh, go ahead. And we had Willie Nelson come this last year, which is like by far like the bucket list for all of us, right? So. Well, yeah, I've been trying to get Willie Nelson for years. Uh, like I said, I'm older, so to me, you know, he is the, the true OG, the man that went out there and faced getting arrested. No matter what, he did, he'd get out there and go smoke again and just put it in their face. Uh, he never backed down. He wasn't one of those people that was afraid to, you know, speak his piece. And not only that, with Farm Aid and all the other stuff that Willie's done, he is the, the true OG. And so we finally got him to come over and accept our Lifetime Achievement Award. And uh, what he did to us was something that you know, touched me in one of the proudest moments of my life, was that he allowed us to change the name to the Willie, Norse, Willie Nelson Award in perpetuity. So forever, our Lifetime Achievement Award will be now called the Willie Nelson Award. And of course, he was the first recipient of that. And so to have him on our stage last year at the Emerald Cup was... Uh, was a highlight, like I said, one of the proudest moments in my life. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was it was great for me to see him there. Uh, I've seen him perform once before. Uh, April and I went with the Crockett's to see him perform uh, at Avila Beach a uh, year ago or so. 
Uh, it was my first time seeing him. It was great. Uh, I'm not the biggest country music fan, to be perfectly honest, but uh, I've always had a great respect for Willie, uh, and I've, I've definitely warmed up to the outlaw country uh, music over the over the past several years, uh, and it's growing on me. But yeah, seeing him there and accepting that award was great. Uh, talk about bucket list. I've been very fortunate in my life working at High Times. I've been able to meet and smoke with and hang out with most of the cannabis celebrities and most of my idols. Uh, Willie is the exception. I've, I've met Snoop. I've met Jay and Silent Bob. I've met, you name it, like all the cannabis. Uh, Ozzy, I've smoked a bowl with Ozzy. But I've never gotten to meet Willie. And, and uh, I was kind of hoping I'd get to meet him this time. But I hear he was in and out, you know, fairly quick. He is, he is you know, getting on in years. And I don't think he likes to... Uh, hang around for too long, but someday I'm hoping, while he's still with us, I'll get to sit on that bus with him and, and share a puff. Well, talking to you and listening to your stories, uh, I was on the one side, really buried deep in the woods, being an outlaw, and then I listen to people like you that have been able to really go out there in society and, and socialize and partake with people like Snoop and, and all the rest of them, and Ozzy, and, uh, you know, I... Uh, I'm not, I'm not jealous. I'm really happy that you were able to do that, and I really wish that uh, I would have gotten a few chances like that, and hopefully I will in the future. Yeah, speaking of Jay and Silent Bob, they were also at this year's uh, Emerald Cup. They did a live taping of their podcast, very similar to what I'm doing here, and in a way it kind of inspired me to do this because I've come the past few years and I haven't done the live podcast, and after seeing them do it, uh, I, I, I said, you know what? I, I could do that. I should do that. That's what I should do. So um, I'm, that's why I, you know, I'm doing it this year, and I think so far so good. <laughs> well, we'll bring you into a podcast at the Cup this year, and uh, that sounds like something we should just start with right now. Cool. Well, I, I would be honored. I'd be honored to participate in, in any way in your event. I love the event. And uh, speaking of that, I also, I also want to uh, bring up the contest and the judging. Um, you mentioned earlier briefly that you, you've expanded to quite a few categories now, and I was curious about the judging process, like uh, how are the judges selected, how big are the judges' kits, how much time do they have to judge the, the different uh, categories. Can you elaborate on that for us? Well, starting out as a flowers contest, uh, we don't do a one-day contest or a three- or four-day contest. We take you know five or six weeks. Uh, the judges come in, speaking on the flower side, uh, we get 14 entries. Uh, we have about 10 to 12 judges. Uh, I, mean, each, I mean, each entry gives us uh, 14 grams or, of material so the judges can have enough on top of what we need for everything else. But we have a, uh, a five-part scoring system where it's a 50-grade score for perfect, so it's a 1 to 10 for the smell, look, and the taste, and then a double score for the high. So you can end up, you know liking the, the look and the smell, but it comes down to it's, it's got to have the right high. It's got to get you high. Now, over the years, we, could, we, we probably should split those contests up into different terpene profiles so that an OG isn't competing against a Blue Dream. But to this point, it's still really, at the end of the day, it's the best bud. And, you know, the highest THC bud has never really won. Somebody came with a 28% THC and said, I'm going to win the cup. And I said, probably not, because that's not, the, that's not the way it works. It's usually a balance of the, you know, the cannabinoids and the terpene profiles that really bring the day and win it. So our judges go away. They spend uh, weeks with this. We have multiple days of gatherings. Taylor can tell you it's a tremendous process to witness and go through. We've had a lot of celebrity judges that have wanted to come and work with us. And when they realize how many times they've got to get together and spend a day with the judges and then go back. So if you're looking at like 600 entries, the judges get together and really whittle that down to like 300. And then they, they split that up and they go out and do that. And then they'll whittle it down to 100 or 150. And then they'll get a top 50 and then everybody will go out with the top 50 for another weekend to come back. 
and then sit down on a Thursday and, and uh, come down to a top 20. Uh, now that we've expanded, we started with concentrates, we went into medicinals, now we have 27 contests. So it's such a huge thing. I'll throw Taylor over here to tell you how challenging that contest alone is to go across California, pick up entries from everybody, bring them back to the judges, get them to the testing labs, have people and the judges get together three or four times, bring all those numbers and get all that done. Uh, the production of the cup is small compared to the challenge of putting that contest on. It always terrorizes us every year. <laughs> The one thing I will just add to that is that people always want to be a judge. They always are like, how can I be a judge? And I always feel like the biggest thing is that it's a job. And, like, the, the judging job is a really serious job in the way that they have to commit to actually trying all those samples. So that's one thing. I never envy the judges' jobs because they, they actually really have a, a big task at hand. So does everybody judge everything, or is are they broken down by categories? Because you're no, saying no. six, five, six hundred entries being whittled down, but that's in individual groups, right? Yeah, so yeah, how yeah. many category, how many entries per category? What would be a high end? So this year we had 27 categories. Um, the judges separate between the categories. So for example, flowers. You would have the flowers judges judge um, the licensed category for sun-grown and light depth. And you also had them judge the personal use for light depth and sun-grown. So they judged four categories total. Um, and how but, many, but how many entries would they need to be required to, to go through? This year was actually like our, our fewest amount of entries just due to like the legalization process. So our flowers judges, I think, judge what? It was like 200? Yeah, almost 300 entries. Wow. Um, and then we have our solventless judges. The solventless judges, they judge rosin, solventless. Our hydrocarbon judges, they judge all those categories. Our topicals judges judge that. The CBD category is always the hardest because they judge all of the entries. Um, well, not the hardest, but it, it's really hard. Well, it's the hardest to, to judge, I think, because yeah. you're not judging a head high as much as... Right. It's, it's a little more tricky to, to, to decide how much you like it or how effective it is, I think. And our community, which unfortunately, they do enter the last minute. So we do have this rush at the end. So even though this year we had a contest that was open for a month and a half, it was open for six weeks, we got the most amount of entries the last four days. So it just puts the pressure on our judges. Yeah, that's yeah. typical of, of, especially of stoners, <laughs> but of people in general, but particularly of stoners. They'll always yeah. wait till the last minute. They want to cure it that extra yeah. day. They want to, you know, wait that extra day to cut it down. You know, it's always that, just the last minute, you know? Yeah, always. But if it, the judges, do they have to congregate and meet together, or can people just, like, pick up their kits and then go do it on their own and enter their scores on their own? So the, the Flowers judges actually have become almost like a cultural event for us. Like, we just, we couldn't even see it happening any other way. They always show up to Area 101 in Laytonville, which is a really far way away from pretty much everyone. So it's not convenient at all. But um, all the Flowers judges meetings happen on site. Um, concentrate meetings, they all get together and they have their own meetings. Something like a topical or a tincture, it's really hard to have them have on-site meetings because... So it's you... done by committee, kind of? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's judges, yeah. That's interesting. But the, the on-site judging, it differs for categories, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, I've, I've judged 
quite a few High Times Cups. I've run a number of High Times Cups as the administrator, as the competition coordinator, and we gave our judges a week to judge, and we often would have a, a, a property, a house that we rented that would serve as like a judge's congregation area for them to meet and chat about it, but that being said, we also had judges that would just take the kits and leave, and they would enter their scores in the computer or send in the form, and, and we would just tabulate them. And it makes it uh, a little easier for certain people who are not local or who don't have the time to, to devote to that to go home, judge on their own pace, and then you still get the results. But that's not really like an option for this well, the thing with us is that we like to have everybody get together, whether it's on the phone or in person, after we get those uh, tallies up, and then everybody sit down and then really go over what's really the best, because it's not just numbers, and sometimes, especially with the flowers, uh, the scores are close, and so by the time people sit down and discuss it, a lot of times what may have got the highest score by the time the group gets together, it's not the winner, because maybe a certain group placed it really high, and some people didn't place it very high, so... It becomes a very uh, personal thing because everybody has different preferences. So we like to make sure that there's a consensus amongst the judges as to what wins. And so it sounds like you'd be perfect. Taylor and I would just look at each other, and we should just jump you right into our contest for next year along with the podcast. (laughs) Well, you know, now that I live so much closer to where you guys are located, I was going to suggest maybe throwing my hat in the ring for that. But, you know, I don't know. Being up there for a long period of time, that's why I was kind of thinking like, hmm, you know. Well, would I be able to take the samples home and then maybe come back for the final meeting or something like that? I mean, we could have our own podcast almost about this later. But I do <laughs> feel like um, that the, the decision when it comes to judging is really interesting because you want your contestants to feel comfortable in the fact that they have industry experts judging their product. But those judges cannot enter into that category. So you have to find people that are not obviously entering. Sure. And that does, at times, come with like an issue when it comes to favoritism in brands. And so I think that that's like our biggest thing for 2019 is we really want to reinvent our judging process. Well, is your judging blind or do they know what it is when they're judging it? Well, so that's, it depends on the product. So flowers have always been blind. Right. Concentrates, when it comes to solventless, have pretty much always been blind. Um, when it comes to a marketed product like edibles. You can't, yeah. Right. We're not going to rip open your product of course, and put of it. Course. So that's harder, you know. Yeah. But um, but there's different flavor profiles that people have always accused us of, of being like, well, they know that that's that brand or something. And we're like, no. <laughs> One of the real challenges is that this was a friendly contest for a long time. And now it's really become a, a professional contest, like a wine industry contest. I always wanted it to be like for everybody, but now you've got to enter through distributors, and so you've got to already be a business except for the personal uh, use for the flowers. Every one of those other companies is now a real branded business, and so this is truly an industry business competition now amongst professionals, and so it's elevated up to where it really means a lot, like in the wine industry, to get a top three or a top ten, even, even top 20 in the Emerald Cup for the flowers. And so it's really become a little different, and so now we've got to throw it open so people do take the packaging into account. They do take in the other elements, the ingredients and everything in there. And so it's really, we've had to open it up and really evolve very quickly into being uh, a commercial business uh, competition. Yeah, and the awards do tend to matter. I know from experience with High Times, someone would be, you know, oftentimes 
you know, an underdog, someone that maybe no one had ever even heard of, some young concentrate maker, and he wins a first place or a second place, or she wins a first place or second place, and suddenly you see them again a year later or two years later, and they have a huge business. They're suddenly, because they were in demand, people sought them out. You know, those awards do mean things to people. It it can propel your business forward, Uh, you know, an event like yours that has uh, a prestige and a, a respect among the community that means something to people. And you always do have to be careful of that, even the whiff of favoritism or bias, because a lot of times people who win your events are people that you guys are very friendly with. And immediately the first thing people say is, oh, look, they gave it to their friends, you know, uh, third gen family. There's a few different brands that I know you guys are close with. Uh, and, and I, you know, I always say, we got the same thing at high times. We would get it all the time. Oh, you know, Ariane from the greenhouse spent the most money, so that's why he won. And I would have to explain to people that, like, yes, certain people do spend a lot of money in advertising or whatever promotion, but there was two different types of contests going on at High Times. One was the, was the popular vote one, and the rest was the seat company entries, which were judged by the private VIP judges. The judges who were VIP never knew what they were getting. Now, they might have been smart enough and savvy enough to figure out, oh, maybe this bud is from the greenhouse, but they never knew. So anything that won, won fairly. It's the popular vote won that these guys were influencing because the judges who were coming to Amsterdam would see all the ads for, you know, this brand or that brand, and they would end up voting for it. So having a blind, fair competition, if it's truly blind and fair, the best stuff's going to rise to the top regardless. And it, sometimes it happens to be the people you're friends with because obviously they know what they're doing or they wouldn't be part of this. They wouldn't be respected. And also a part of that is is the fact that we've become friends since they won, which is exactly why I'm sure you had the same exact thing where it's not like we just met in this autonomous environment. You're like, oh, we're in the same circles and you've won, so... Now we've our friends. Yeah, when you've I, been I, in the industry for yeah, twenty years, you know everybody. Everybody's your friend. So you know, it's like, okay, well, this guy won. You hung out with him. Yeah, well, I hang out with everybody. You there's know? people that I don't like that have won. Yeah, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Ditto. You know. But you said something that's. Uh, I want to go back to it for a second. Yeah. Uh, the first big uh, winner that really had influence on his business was Leo from Aficionado, and you look at Aficionado, and he came and won. Uh, with that chem dog cross, and the next year he was selling seeds for fifty dollars a piece with that beautiful aficionado packaging, and it, it really led to like okay, uh, Amaya and different people that win the awards uh, for their for seed companies, for the product makers, and for everybody else. It's a tr- tremendous prestigious thing, and it really comes into increasing the value of their products significantly. So it, it's become so serious that yes, we have to make sure that we have judges that are objective that nobody's biased, that nobody's any favoritism, and that we're removed as possible. So there's never even a thought that, that we're throwing it to somebody. I would say, Bobby, that I really think that it would be very interesting to have a conversation with you about how do we elevate that standard in the contest community to really make it fair, that people can recognize it from the outside. Because we all know how fair it is on our end, right? Like, we see the judging process. Everything's blind. We get the scores, all of that. But the community doesn't ever see that. You know what I mean? Like it's like they they always assume the worst. And 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 it's and it's always that way. And it's it's not anything you guys are doing. It happened with High Times. I'm sure it probably happened with Chalice and other events as well. Um, 
you know, people are going to, haters going to hate, as they like to say, you know. Uh, people, sometimes it's people who, who think their stuff should have won and they're bitter that they didn't or they didn't place or anything. Sometimes it's just personal beefs where someone they don't like personally won and therefore they're angry about it. And, you know, the bottom line is people without insight for information are just purely conjecture. They, they may think they, they know it's fixed or biased, but they don't, they're not basing that on any real information. So for the most part, you have to just dismiss people like that and know that if you're doing it right, that the right people will know that you're doing it right. Um, but yeah, it is, it is a serious issue. Um, last year uh, here, I uh, worked with uh, some of the people here to do the Aloha Cup, where we did like a, it was a very small contest, uh, you know, local, local growers mostly, and, and uh, uh, I, I ran it, and it, was, uh, it went very well, you know. Um, we didn't end up doing it this time because uh, there was, um, uh, the environment just wasn't feel right for it this time, so we kind of putting it on hold until we, you know, we want to make sure that we're, whatever we do, we're doing it in, in compliance with the law and we're not, you know, crossing any lines and stuff. But we, we will, we do want to bring it back. But yeah, it's running a competition, if, you know, it's, it's tricky because there's always, there's always that possibility. There's always that, you know, um, you know, I work for Crockett now, you know, and uh, I'm not involved in the growing of any of the weed. I'm, I'm more of a, a branding marketing, uh, brand development person. But, you know, if I was to judge a contest and I know Crockett's strains are in it, um, you know, I might want to choose a different category that he's not in, you know, Cause I, because I wouldn't be biased. And to be perfectly honest with you, even if I knew, even if I knew Crockett was entered in that, and I knew, even if I figured out which bud was his, if I liked another bud better, I would vote for the other bud. Because that matters to me. Like, if I'm going to be a judge in a cannabis competition, cannabis has been my whole life. It's my passion. Like, I'm not going to just give it to somebody because I work for them or because I'm friends with them. That's not the way I think. Maybe other people I'm sure do, but that's not the way I am. I would say, you know what? Hey, you know, Crockett, your boba's great, but this other guy is a little better, you know, and I, I gave him a higher score. You know, I mean, that's just the way, I, I, that's what having integrity means. And if you're going to approach something with integrity, then, you know, that's important to me. It's important to having integrity, I'm sure, is important to you and your contest. It's important to me. It's important to the people who run this event. I know that too, as well. Well, you know, one year, the year that they we thought we threw it to Brandon and Third Gen, it was actually Taylor Beasel who was our head judge, and he didn't like Brandon at all. And he, and he knew that that was Brandon's, and he still voted for that. And so it was really funny for people to be talking about, oh, we threw that to Brandon, and when it was like, look, the lead judge didn't even like Brandon and voted for it because he knew it was the best. And so we always make sure that we have objective judges in each category so that they can see the process. And every time they, we do this in every category, they come back and go, this is amazing to see how many diverse judges there are how objective they are, how much time they put into this, and how much they don't favor anyone. And so we're really proud of that contest. It's the start of integrity. I mean, integrity is the key word in my life. It's what the cup's about. It's what the contest is about. It's what this show is about with Dana and Mike, and that's why people can feel it. And everybody wants to be around that now because there's so little of that in this, this crazy mixed-up world that we live in now. Yeah, with all the, with all the what I call cannabaggers coming in, the cannabis carpetbaggers, uh, coming in with their big hedge fund money and their big ideas and their big real estate deals and all. And this, I, every day I, I, I look at the news and, and I see this cannabis company acquired this other one and this one is merging with them. I'm like, I haven't even heard of these companies and they're like acquiring each other already. Like, it, 
it's going to get crazy. It's going to get real crazy and real corporate. But I agree with you that we need to continue to focus and remind people that this was a community before it was an industry. Uh, that this started from people who were passionate about helping patients, passionate about keeping people out of prison, uh, passionate about uh, being able to do with our own bodies what we choose to do. Uh, and that should be a, a, a God-given right and, a, and an inalienable right. And there's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with having a, a prosperous business. But you don't do it by hurting and stepping on other people. And there's a way to do it. There's a way forward. You know, the cannabis industry has been trying to, like I said, before it was an industry, it was a community. And we, of all the industries in the capitalist system, maybe have a chance to show the other ones how it's done. Maybe we can show... America and the world, how you can make money and be successful as an industry and still be inclusive to minorities and still be inclusive to women and still care about the environment and global warming and not, and be aware of our carbon footprint and aware of all those things and do it right. Do it right. Do show them how capitalism can be done right. 1000%. That's like why I was going to say the biggest, uh, the biggest regret that I have in the last year has definitely been the fact that I feel like the communication aspect of the companies in the in the regards of competition has been really depressing. I feel like people that we were in a certain sense friends with, you know, there becomes like this competition aspect where nowadays it becomes like you guys aren't friends anymore, you know, and kind of what you were just saying where it's like building relationships and having those strong relationships and knowing what you actually stand for because it's not just it is about money, but it's not all about money at the end of the day. Well, you know, we talk about it, and it's very interesting. Back in the days of being an outlaw, you'd look at your left or your right to people that were growing alongside of you, and you'd always wish them the best in getting in their crops and selling it, because if you could finish a crop, you were going to sell it, and there wasn't any adversarial competition. When it became brands and everybody competing against each other in the legal markets, now all of a sudden you're looking over and you're going, oh, how good is his branding? And how, how good is his logo and how much money is he spending on his thing? And it, and it naturally, in this capitalist society, turns us into competitors. And that's what you're seeing uh, in every aspect of the cannabis industry in California and across the world. We're, we're becoming in competition, not only with ourselves, but look at You've got three Marley brands. You've got Joe Montana coming in. You've got Francis Ford Coppola. I mean, you can go down the list of people, Willie Nelson. I mean, we're not only in competition with each other, but we're in competition with some of the largest names and public figures in the world. And that's a good sign because it shows you where cannabis is being uh, welcomed into and accepted by. And I, I think it's great for the overall community. But as far as our, our community industry, it's really tough not to become uh, adversarial and competitive. D- despite, those, despite those things, those factors, and despite some of the obvious uh, issues people have had with the legalization laws going forward, are you optimistic? Are you hopeful about where things are headed, and, uh, you know, what, where do you see uh, cannabis in, in, in five years? Well, I firmly believe that the hemp legalization bill is going to be just the beginning. We're going to watch manufacturing. People don't realize that you can make uh, plastics out of hemp. You can make crete building materials, all of our fabrics, textiles. Hemp is going to see manufacturing come back to this country. We're going to have manufacturing mills throughout this, this country, and we're going to bring jobs back from overseas, and it's going to be an amazing jobs program and, uh, and the taxes and everything that's going to come back to this country over the next couple of years, just on the hemp side. I firmly believe in what I'm hearing is that you're going to see complete descheduling and legalization uh, by 2020. 
Uh, it's going to become a big platform issue with the Democrats. I think that Trump's going to take advantage of it. He needs, uh, needs the uh, popularity. He needs the votes. And I think you're going to see legalization come across because right now we're looking at losing this market to the Canadians, who are the first G7 nation uh, exporting all over the world. You've got the Israelis coming in, 110 clinical trials. You've got the Colombians. You've got people all over the world now, Thailand coming in. And if we don't embrace this very quickly, then it's something that we built over the last 70 years. We're going to lose our status as the world leaders. And so I think you're going to see a tremendous, tremendous thing with this legalization and interstate capabilities and us being able to move products across the states, across the country, across the world. And so we're just at the beginning, the very, very beginning of a new universe that's being built. We have an extinction event on the one side of some of these old small farmers and product makers, and it breaks my heart. And I don't know what to say about it, how I could really give them anything but my love and respect. On the other side, you have this unbelievable new universe that's exploding, and it's going to continue to build planets and galaxies and stars throughout this country and throughout this world over the next five years. And it's not going to turn around. And the, and the impact of what cannabis does on societies, the benefits from the lack of opiates and the lack of alcohol and the, and the better thinking and, and more optimism and inspiration and the inclusion of all the different uh, minorities and women and everybody into this community, cannabis is leading the way. We're leading the way in teaching traditional agriculture how they're messing up all the soil. We're teaching it with regenerative farming. We're teaching with our testing levels where we have to be so clean. And as a community, we're going to lead the way, and I'm so honored to be part of that community. We're going to watch what's happening here blow up into a huge show in the next couple of years because you'll be able to have on-site sales, you'll be able to have consumption, you'll have your own contest. So we're just at the very beginning of it. So find a way, find where your passion is, jump into one aspect or another in it, and get ready for an incredible, prosperous, wonderful ride over the next five, ten years. Right on, man. Right on. And what's what about you guys personally? What do you what's upcoming for you besides uh, obviously next year's event, which you'll be building towards? What else do you guys have uh, coming up? Any any products, companies, other things that you're working on? Well, Tim and I are actively now looking at moving to Hawaii. So, Bobby, I don't know if you wow. want to go. <laughs> Bobby, if you want to go in like a house or something, we can just be roommates. <laughs> right on. Well, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine came to me and said, you're not making any money because you're doing all the political stuff, and the cup doesn't make any money. People think I make a fortune, but I don't make a fortune on the Emerald Cup. And so we started uh, three uh, permitted uh, cultivation sites. We have a genetics company. We make some of the finest concentrates in the world. We have a nursery. We have a manufacturing site. We have a number of product companies, and we're partners with Red Light Management, the same people that have partnered in the Emerald Cup, partnered in my product companies, along with the Hussein family out of Canada. Joey Hussein is the uh, representative and Joey's just an amazing individual. He owned parts of Prohibited and Eel River Organics and 15 other cannabis companies, Tokyo Smoke. And so they're a privately owned company. And so we've come together to make the finest products in the world with the best production team in the world to take this message of regenerative farming and uh, sustainable organic living lifestyles uh, to the rest of the country and the rest of the world. And we're very proud that we're going to be doing that over the next few years. And uh, I, I look at being busier than ever, but not being on the farm anymore, but out doing this and uh, working with people like you and all the people that got to really integrate into all these communities and uh, hoping to inspire and teach them and educate them so that they can learn from our mistakes and get it down faster and better and uh, bring the wealth and, and bounty to their communities too. Right on. Well, uh, we're just about out of time. Uh, I want to thank you guys so much. It's been really a pleasure and an honor to have you uh, both on the, on the show, uh, Tim and Taylor. 
And uh, I hope that uh, maybe uh, I'll get to be a judge uh, this coming year. Oh, no, you're not have to hope. That's, a, that's an official <laughs> invitation and an official invitation to do a podcast, too, that we'll do uh, that. We want to bring in the best of what High Times had to offer you and Danny and all the people that really built did the good work at High Times. We'd be honored to have everybody integrated into the cup in some way because uh, that was the best of the best of High Times, and we'd love to have that be part of a community with the Emerald Cup. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for taking time to talk to us today. Uh, thanks for listening, all you guys. Thanks, Hawaii Cannabis Expo, for hosting us and hosting uh, Blaze with Bobby Black. We appreciate it. I'll be back tomorrow at 3 p.m. with another interview up here on the stage for Blazing. So stick around. Have a great time. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. And uh, aloha. Aloha. Thank you very much for inviting us. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.